Hey there, and welcome to Poverty Unpacked, the podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. I'm your host, Katie Rulin, and in conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions, and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In this episode, I speak with Naomi Eisenstadt. Naomi was director of the Shorestart program in England, an innovative nationwide scheme for children growing up in disadvantaged areas. It was a very popular scheme, the first government scheme that everybody liked, says Naomi. And in this episode, we hear about its successes and challenges. We also speak about supporting parents in low-income settings more broadly and the role of welfare in doing so. And although set in England, there are many interesting learnings from programs and policies around the world that try to tackle disadvantage and improve child development. Naomi and I both live in Milton Keynes, which is a city about an hour north of London in the UK. And it's a so-called new town. It was developed in the 1970s with lots of efforts to build community in the newly established neighborhoods. And you will hear Naomi refer to some of the specificities or peculiarities of when the town was developed, such as the development corporation who were in charge at the time when there was not yet a council, and to arrival workers who reached out to new residents and helped them settle. You will hear there's also quite a few references to politicians that were in power between the 1919s and now, and it gives a good perspective of how politics influences policy design. But for now, over to our conversation. Well, Naomi, thank you very much for joining the podcast. It's really nice to have you with us. And I want to start our conversation by asking you a little bit about your work early on in your career, because you have such a long career and rich experience. You've worked for a long time on issues of early childhoods, especially in deprived areas or with people experiencing poverty. And early on, you were head of a nursery in one of the neighborhoods here in Milton Keynes. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little about your experiences there and especially what they taught you about improving opportunities for children from more disadvantaged backgrounds. I spent five years on Bean Hill and I set up the nursery. The development corporation had been spending a lot of money on childcare for the staff of their own staff and the Open University. And they decided they should divert some money towards poor neighborhoods and poor children. So they asked me to set up this nursery. It was five days a week, 10 half day sessions. So some children came five mornings, some children came five afternoons. And it was very, very strongly committed to involving the parents, mainly the mothers, in the running of the nursery. So they helped out as volunteers and they were on the board. They helped in selecting staff. They helped in deciding what we were going to do. And I suppose what it taught me most about particularly women on a low income is that they get by with a struggle and they're really careful. And that the idea that, you know, if only poor people could learn how to manage finances everything would be okay well these women finances much better than I was because they had to because they knew in terms of the way they were with their children I think what my main observation that I really enjoyed was that these women took this white working class area in the 80s so late 70s early 80s I think that's important to say and at that point, I mean, they really thought it was important to, to stay home with young children until they went to school. They thought their children needed them. And it's a funny thing about at that point in feminism, 
there was a sort of disdain for women who chose not to have careers. Well, I don't think these women had a choice for careers. Their choices were cleaning jobs or jobs in supermarkets, and they wanted to put their children first. And their real sense of power and agency was in being mothers. And I think I went so much to respect that in them that they felt that that was the thing that they knew about and that you didn't make people improve their parenting by implying that they were not good enough mothers because they were very good mothers. They were just working under much harder circumstances than I had to. And I really enjoyed the work. And they were, you know, I just had a lot of fun with these women. That's really interesting. I wanted to take a step back a little bit and ask you about why this nursery in, in the area of Bean Hill and was this one area selected within Milton Keynes or were there multiple nurseries across the town at that time that were trialed with different ways of running them? Not really. I mean, this was the development corporation. It wasn't the council because Milton Keynes was still under the auspices of the Milton Keynes Development Corporation. There were some council nursery schools. Eventually, there were a couple of family centers set up by voluntary organizations. So there was various facilities, but this nursery served three estates. It was Bean Hill, Coffee Hall, and Netherfield, basically walking distance. And it combined not just half-day nursery classes, but there was a drop-in that the mothers could do mother and toddler groups or just stay and have a chat and have a coffee. And the women organized outings. So um, it wasn't part of a wider scheme yet. It was really recognizing that Development corporate Corporation put a huge emphasis on neighborhood and community because they were building a new city. And part of that was, was having facilities for young children uh, on the estates. And was this particular estate chosen because it was a working class community and maybe people were living on lower incomes as well? Yeah, it was definitely the, you know, one of the lowest income areas in Milton Keynes. Bean Hill and the Lakes Estate were the two poorest areas, lowest income, um, social ha uh, rental housing. But the other thing that it really taught me is that I didn't like the houses on Bean Hill very much. I thought they, they weren't very nice. But the women absolutely loved them because they came from overcrowded Victorian terraces in London that had not yet been gentrified. So they were thrilled to have a little garden. They were thrilled to have central heating. You know, they really loved their houses and they were very happy to get away from London. And you spoke a little bit about the involvement of mothers and parents in the running of the nursery. Was that an approach that you pushed for or was that always the idea when the nursery was set up? Well, I pushed for it because previously in San Diego, when I was running a parent cooperative nursery that was set up by parents on the university campus in San Diego, and the management committee was parents, I was hired by parents, it was a co-op run by parents for, actually, it was for the children of foreign students and faculty, and somehow I was perhaps naive to think, well, if it works on a university campus, why can't it work on Bean Hill? And just attributed the same, you know, interest in understanding how things are run and running things themselves. And what was really useful was having the parents involved, if we were recruiting a new member of staff, having a group of mothers, it was, you know, there were some fathers involved, but then those days it was mainly, mainly mothers involved in writing the job description to get a sense of what they wanted out of staff in the nursery, not just what I think was important. 
And the arguments about that was really interesting, really interesting. And having them sit on panels. On one panel, when we were recruiting, there was a candidate they didn't like because she was too posh. And that was clearly her accent. And I realized what a huge advantage it was being American and not having a class-based accent. So I could I could work with these women with with no assumptions because I was I was foreign. Mm-hmm. And did you receive any resistance from within the development corporation or other colleagues, people running nurseries thinking you were a bit crazy to do this? Well, it was so small scale in terms of others around the country. Nobody knew. <laughs> and I didn't think it was particularly unusual because I I wasn't I hadn't been in the country that long. So I didn't know how it was done here. So I just did like I did it in California, which sounds rather naive. And the development corporation were fine about it. They didn't mind at all. In some sense, they liked the idea that parents were involved in running the place because of staff numbers. And it meant that it was consistent with their d- desire to have much more community engagement on, in these new areas where everybody was new, everybody had just moved in. So for yeah. example, the development corporation had arrivals workers who when you moved into a new house in Milton Keynes, someone would come and show you the bus maps and show you how to register with the doctor and all that kind of stuff. Well, the arrivals workers turned out to be so successful that I asked for one to be a nursery home visitor. So that if somebody, if we knew where a woman, a family lived with a three-year-old to knock on the door and say, do you know about the nursery? Would you like me to take you there? Would you like me to introduce the staff? Well, those sorts of personal touches and personal contacts turned out to be incredibly effective in bringing forth people who were new to the area, quite shy, didn't feel able to get involved. And it was a way to involve them with somebody that they'd already met. So there were things that were happened that were that were fortuitous in terms of the way the development corporation worked. Fascinating how the context of setting up Milton Keynes as a new town, how all these different elements come together and the support that people received when they came here. Exactly. Definitely, you've done a, a lot of good work in your nursery because if we fast forward about two decades, uh, you became director of, of the Sure Start program, which was a new national scheme uh, set up to support young children and their families. And it was quite a flagship scheme. Before we go into some of the reflections on your experiences working on that, could you explain why the scheme was set up and, and what was so innovative about it? So, In 1997, a Labour government came into power and after 13 years of conservative governments. And there was a big thing in Labour about third way and new ways of doing things, and particularly around joined up government, government departments working together. So a lot of this was driven by Gordon Brown at the Treasury. And up until then, and this I didn't know because, again, not, not being British, historically, the Treasury had negotiations with individual government departments on what they would deliver for the public and then how, how much taxpayers' money they would have to deliver what they had to deliver. So education got money for schools and for universities, et cetera, et cetera. They decided that they wanted to do some cross-government reviews, looking at wicked problems that required more than one government department to contribute to solve the problems. And that was run from the Treasury, largely by a brilliant civil servant called Norman Glass, sadly, who's died since. And he did a cross-departmental review on services for young children. And what he found in that review is 
that children living in poverty do less well than their better off peers, that children living in poverty require services from a range of government departments. They obviously they need health services, they need education uh, services. They also need places to play, which would be in leisure departments. The things that families with young children need come from a variety of government departments. And there was no cross government strategy on services for young children. And that a cross government strategy could make the biggest difference to children living in poverty because they were the least less likely to do well than their better off peers. And out of that cross-government review on services for young children came the Sure Start program. It was announced in Parliament in 1998, and I started work on Sure Start in February 1999. And practically, what was the scheme about? What would it deliver right, for exactly. children? <laughs> this was an area-based initiative. It was based on the poorest neighbourhoods in England. And, and there was separate money for Scotland and Wales so, and Northern Ireland. So I'm just talking about England. You would select an area that was very, very poor and invite a bid from that area to say, how could you in this local area within pram pushing distance? So we're talking about very small, you know, a few streets on a very poor estate. How could you bring services together of health, education, social welfare, employment advice, benefits advice, so that you had for children in, in the early days of Sure Start uh, up to the age of four, a set of services on one base, including childcare, that could provide a range of services for young families. And we had a public service agreement, we had targets that by providing these joined up services, you would improve school readiness, you would reduce the number of low birth weight babies, you would reduce the number of bronchial problems in babies. It was all about health and education targets to bringing together and neighborhood support. And at the neighborhood level, it was about bringing local services together, both public and voluntary sector services. And at government level, when I first started Sure Start, I reported to a health minister, Tessa Jowell, who reported to the Secretary of State for Education, who was David Blunkett. So it was genuinely cross-government at Whitehall level and cross-agency at neighbourhood level. Wow, so that's really innovative and, and quite different from how other programmes and policies are run. In your perception, did it work? Well, one of the things to say is that it was very generously funded. My budget for the first three years was 450 million. In the first spending review, which was two years after, so the spending reviews were for three-year settlements, but you do the review two years in so that you knew what was going to happen after the third year, it was more than doubled. The budget was doubled. Did it work? The thing that worked the best, which I'm most proud of, is that for whatever reason, the culture of Sure Start, although it was explicitly aimed at poor areas and at families living in poverty, the culture was incredibly inclusive and open and parents absolutely loved it. I would say that it was the first government program ever set up specifically for families living in poverty that everybody wanted. It was enormously popular. People loved it. There was a huge amount of work that went into making sure that the people least likely to come forward would come forward. We had outreach workers, assertive outreach, 
we had problems in data collection on where the families that could benefit most lived so that we could knock on doors. It's what I call not a universal service, but an open access service. So if you lived in the catchment area, you could use the services. It was not based on a social services assessment or an educational assessment. If you lived in the area, you could use it. So, it, and it was very well used. In terms of child outcomes, it's mixed. So we did not get the kind of educational or cognitive outcomes we were hoping for. And there are reasons for that that I can explain later if you want to know. But we got some good outcomes in terms of improvement in the home learning environment, less home chaos, better life satisfaction for mothers. Interestingly enough, um, better employment. And Shorestart itself employed a lot of local women that started out working in Shorestart and then turned out to have careers in early years or in social work or whatever. It was successful in that sense. More recently, in 2019, the Institute for Fiscal Studies did a review that found that by the age of 12, there were fewer hospitalizations for Sure Start children. And for girls, it was due to infection. It was for boys due to broken bones. Now, these are correlations. But interestingly enough, Kathy Silver, the professor at, at University of Oxford in the education department, who was very active in helping us set up Sure Start, her view is that there's something about self-regulation in those children that, that meant that there were fewer broken bones in the boys up to the age of 12, which of course saved the NHS a lot of money. Not enough money to replace the amount invested, but we, we are still counting the long-term results. So I would say that bits of it were very successful, bits of it were disappointing, and that I have views about how we could make it better. We'll come to that a bit later, but first I also want to ask you about some of the written work that you've published around Sure Start and your other experiences. And one of them is in your book, Parents, Poverty and the State, where you talk about how policy should decrease pressures on families or parents and create opportunities, uh, sort of a, a twofold approach. What do you mean by that when, when you say that? So first, I want to say the book is co-written with my friend and colleague, Carrie Oppenheim. Reducing pressures and increasing opportunities came from a slide from the strategy unit at number 10 that Axel Heitmiller uh, was leading a review of family policy. And, and the, the slide had two columns on it. it. The title was, what is the role of government in family policy? And government has two main roles, we argue in the book. One is reducing pressures on families, and the other is increasing capabilities. You reduce pressures by income transfers, by generous benefits, by good parental leave arrangements. Anything that you can do to reduce the practical difficulties of living on a low income is reducing pressures. Increasing capabilities is advice, guidance, parenting programs, health visitors, all the work that goes into helping people you know, interact in a more productive way with their children. And the argument in the book is that the balance between reducing pressures and increasing capabilities is critical. What we would argue that the austerity years did, particularly during the coalition and Tory governments of Cameron and Clegg, is that they reduced benefits they put massive pressures on families in terms of cost of living, while at the same time spent small amounts of money on parenting programs. 
And my line on it was always, well, if you put the parenting class somewhere where that has good washing machines and I can do my washing at the same time, I'll go. But I'm not going to go if I'm worried about my electric bill. I'm not going to go if I'm worried about how I'm going to get my washing machine fixed. I'm, it's about recognizing that a lot of the difficulties people on a low income have are very practical. And unless you provide some practical support that reduces the pressures on them, it's unlikely they will have the, the bandwidth, the headspace to think about how they parent their, ch their children. And that leads well into the next question, which is actually about what happens currently and whether you think current government policy strikes that balance between tackling the pressures and creating new opportunities. But it sounds like probably not. I think it's an interesting story. I think that Blair and Brown and Cameron and Clegg all were genuinely interested in family policy because they had young children. And what happened after um, Cameron, when Theresa May took over, she really couldn't talk about family policy because she had no children. And there was a nasty remark about her having no children. That was really unpleasant. Johnson clearly couldn't talk about family policy because the issue of how many children he had was, was always raised in the press. And Sunak doesn't seem to be interested in family policy, but he's very interested in economic growth. And he thinks you do that by female labor market participation. So he's interested in child care, but I don't sense that he's interested in children. So my answer is depressingly, no, I don't think they've got the right balance now. And I think it's a difficult balance to make because Blair inherited a growing economy. He had money to spend. And really since 2008, no government has money to spend. But I think some of the decisions they've made have been the wrong decisions. And also moving away from focusing just on family policy alone or, or interest in children, children's development, there's also been an argument. Part of the austerity project was also blaming people on low incomes or poverty for the situation they're in. So there was a rationale for not investing so much in welfare and benefit schemes. Do you see that as well in current policy, that there is more blaming of people on low incomes, people in poverty for their situation than maybe there was when you were working on Sure Starts? Completely. The narrative is about behaviours, not about the context in which you're trying to, to live your life. I had a debate on Women's Hour with a very famous policymaker, who I, I won't mention, a policy commentator, not a journalist, who said that parenting programs, yeah, when I brought the example of the washing machine, she said, well, let them hand wash. Yeah, I mean, it was completely ridiculous. So the narratives are around behaviors that can change. And I'm a pragmatist. If telling people what to do worked, then we wouldn't be where we are now. Reading to children every night is, is, is a really good thing to do. It's beneficial socially. It's beneficial co cognitively. It is a good thing to do. And if I just told people, just read two bedroom stories every night, it'll change the world. Do I think that everybody would read two books to children every night? No, of course I don't. Because, you know, one of the arguments we make in the book is that money matters in its own right. The opportunities you have to take children on trips, to take them on holiday, all these things are enriching behaviors that, that some people can afford and some can't. But money also matters in terms of family stress. Because the 
tougher it is, your living situation, the less bandwidth you have to do those other things that are really important. It doesn't mean that you can't. Many parents living in poverty are excellent parents, but it's much harder. And to just take the behaviors doesn't work. It's interesting because I, I went to a lecture last week at the Institute for Government on Obesity that was featuring the work of Henry Dimbleby. And it's exactly the same thing on good diet. People know what a good diet is, but the context in which we live is that actually per calorie, junk food is much cheaper. You can fill up your kids for less money on junk food than you can on healthy food, let alone whether they're going to eat the healthy food or not. All these things make it much harder to be a good parent on a low income. And that also then raises questions about in the UK, the government's current scheme, welfare scheme, which is universal credit. So it was introduced a few years ago to consolidate various welfare schemes or benefit schemes. Um, now, you and I have previously spoken about issues with this scheme, but for listeners and especially those from outside of the UK, would you be able to, to say a little bit about what universal credit is and why you think it proves challenging for so many families? Okay, universal credit was designed mainly by a conservative MP who then might have been Secretary of State at Department of Work and Pensions, Ian Duncan Smith. And I have to say his heart was in the right place. He recognized the difficulty that families in poverty were having. And when he looked at the UK, United Kingdom welfare system, there were so many different benefits and it was so complicated and it was so difficult for families to negotiate and navigate what they were entitled to and what they weren't entitled to that he designed with several colleagues, of course, not on his own, an idea of universal credit. And his main aim was that you shouldn't be better off out of work than in work, was to make sure that work paid. Bringing all the benefits together in one place, it was six means-tested benefits that were brought together into one payment. Child tax credit, housing benefit, income support, working tax credit, and employment and support allowance. Now, there were two fundamental problems. One problem is that he was completely right that the system before was too complicated and difficult for everybody, even the advisors, and had been developing over a number of years. Every time there was a problem, there was a tweak to it, which made it even more complicated. So making it simpler was a good thing. The problem is that the amount of money that it, would, it was needed to make sure that you were always better off in work than out of work was more than the Treasury was willing to put forward because of austerity. So he set up what fundamentally could have been a very good scheme, but it wasn't properly funded. So those six benefits, a lot of them were cut at the same time. So that was one fundamental problem with it. The second problem with it, and this is an, an intractable prob problem, I don't blame Ian Duncan Smith for this at all, is that if you make something simple, you make it rigid. So families are complicated. People move in and out of relationships. People have children. Then they form a relationship and they have stepchildren. Then that relationship breaks down. And they so the complications of the fluidity of family life means that you do need a complex welfare system that takes account of all those changes. So any system that is simple is by definition going to be rigid and it's very hard to move and flow in terms of those changes in family life. So 
I think is a very, very difficult problem. I think that Ian Duncan Smith made a real effort and for some families it has been good, but the fundamental problem with it is that it was underfunded. And Ian Duncan Smith knew that, you know, he, he, he tried very hard to get the right amount of money from the treasury and he couldn't. And do you think at the moment tweaks are being made to make it better or is the underfunding just a perennial problem for universal credit? Well, government is doing a variety of things in terms of the cost of living crisis. So they are they're tweaking in terms of help with energy, energy costs, because energy costs are very high. But fundamentally, austerity has hurt the poorest. If you were poor before, you got significantly poor and people are not catching up. And ironically, now there's real debates about the struggles of middle income families because it's not just about income, it's also about the costs of living. It's about prices being higher. So you have inflation, which makes prices higher, um, flat wages. And so wages mm -hmm. that would have been very comfortable 10 years ago are no longer comfortable because of inflation, but they haven't gone up with inflation. And then tuning our attention back again to family policy and, and creating opportunities for children and children's development, you mentioned about sure start, some things worked well, some things were disappointing, and that you also have ideas for how the, the program could be improved. So what do you think government's priority should be? And in saying that, building on your experiences with sure start and maybe some of the things that were disappointing, how they could be improved. My sadness is that we were just learning so much about what was working when the ax came down and so many of these programs were cut. I still believe that some of the key features, putting integrated early years services in the poorest neighborhoods, in nice buildings, you know, in a place that, that is attractive to go to, that's actually warm, where you get a cup of tea, is the right way to go. And that the services in those buildings should be open access. It shouldn't be that you have to be a certain level of poor or you have to have a certain family problem or referred to social services. I mean, that's one of the worst things that they did to what are now family hubs is they made them referral centers for, for social work clients rather than community-based, community-run. So I think putting your resources in the poorest areas, not spreading them too thinly, making sure those things are properly funded, and I think the kinds of services you have in those are, you know, childcare, early education, benefits advice, employment advice. You put all those things together and you begin to get effectiveness, but it can't be done cheaply. It is very expensive. And that's why one of the things that we got wrong is SureStart was so popular, the government decided to have SureStart children's centers everywhere. And once you had them everywhere, I think we spread the resource too thinly. So in the poorest areas, you were not getting the level of support you should get. And the way that they did it then was by saying, well, we'll only open three days a week, or we'll have some services here one day and somewhere else another place. If you really want a community-based service that reaches the people who are least likely to use these kinds of services, it has to be open five days. It has to be open access it has to also collect good data. So another thing that was a real problem for SureStart was the willingness of the NHS to just share data on where you know, women were pregnant and where newborns were. So there's a lot of things that 
I think could be done, but they will require significant investment. And I have to say, in terms of this, I give credit to Andrea Ledsom, who's doing this work on the first thousand days, you know, the first two years of life, setting up programs in local areas, concentrating on pregnancy and babies. And a lot of the things that she wants to happen in those centers are the right things to happen. And she did get some money out of the treasury for them, but there's not enough, I think, to make a real difference. But I think, I think she's on the right track. Well, that's been really fascinating. And I think there's a lot of learning there for people who are not in the UK and even for those who are not in high income countries, but lower and middle income countries as well, where there is a lot of discussion about, of course, about how to improve early childhood outcomes, including area based interventions or child centers and, and how they could work. And I think some of the things you mentioned about not just focusing on behavior, but making places and services attractive and not targeting them to the poorest or making them dependent on referrals are lessons learned relevant for other places as well. And so maybe to wrap up our conversation, I want to ask you if there's anything else that, that you would like to share that I haven't asked about or that you want the listeners to know about. So there's two things that I want I want to say. One is that I think that we overemphasize the community development parts of the program and didn't pay enough attention to what children need. And I think that balance at local level, that negotiation between mothers and fathers in terms of what would make their life less stressful, reducing pressures, and what we as professionals know would improve the outcomes for their children, we never got the balance quite right. It's a very difficult balance. And the second thing I wanna say is that I am in rooms all the time where we talk about the correlation between poor health and poverty, the correlation between poor educational outcomes and poverty, the correlations between early involvement in crime and poverty. Well, the answer can't be just services that prevent those things. The answer has to be reducing poverty. You know, it's a funny thing. Money in the pocket makes a difference. It gives people agency and choices. And I think that we need to get our tax system, our income tax, our wealth tax, our property tax, much more aligned to have less inequality overall. We will always do things to mitigate the impact of poverty. But the one thing that reduces poverty is people having more money. I think that's an excellent note to end on. Naomi, thank you very much for joining. This has been fascinating and I'm convinced that the listeners will really appreciate it. Thank you very much for your time and your insights. Thanks for asking me. I really enjoyed it, Katie. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram and wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a review too. It really helps. We hope you'll join us again next time.